I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. So I'm really excited about this next episode. In my mind, the EU recovery plan and the Green Deal represent incredibly ambitious efforts to mobilize economies towards climate action and the pandemic. And I think both will serve as enduring templates for others to follow. On July the 21st, when EU leaders agreed on an EU recovery plan totaling more than 1.8 trillion euros, it marked a pivotal accomplishment. Not only does the recovery plan direct 750 billion euros in grants, and low-interest loans to counter the impact of COVID-19. But the EU also earmarked 30% of the overall package, or roughly 550 billion euros, for climate spending from 2021 to 2027. Now, some have called the recovery plan Europe's Hamiltonian moment. But while the plan doesn't technically federalize member state debt, it does something important For the first time, it creates new borrowing capacity at the EU level to address systemic risks like the pandemic and climate change. And in all of this, the European Investment Bank is going to play a central role. I should note that we recorded this episode on July the 1st, just as the EU summit was set to begin, which makes this episode a great look at all the forces at play during the negotiation. So it's a privilege to have my next guest, Andrew McDool, on the show. We talk about why the recovery plan actually represents Europe's Roosevelt New Deal moment, as opposed to a Hamiltonian moment. How the European Investment Bank, or EIB, is positioning itself as the EU's climate bank, and what wider EU sustainable finance efforts are doing to reinforce the EIB's climate objectives. Andrew McDool is one of the eight vice presidents of the EIB who, together with President Werner Hoye, formed the management committee that runs the bank on a day-to-day basis. Vice President McDool has oversight of the bank's treasury, economics, and evaluation functions, as well as lending operations in energy and the bioeconomy. He was the vice president responsible for the development of the EIB's new energy lending policy that we'll speak about that has committed the EIB to becoming the first major multilateral financing institution to end support for unabated fossil fuel energy projects. Prior to joining the EIB in 2016, Andrew was chief economic advisor to Irish Prime Minister Enda Kenny from 2011, where he coordinated the policies that supported Ireland's recovery from the economic crisis and sovereign bailout. And for those unfamiliar, the EIB is a publicly owned international financial institution whose shareholders are the EU member states. It was established in 1958 under the Treaty of Rome as a policy-driven bank, using financing operations to further EU policy goals such as European integration and social cohesion. The bank's primary mission is to fund infrastructure projects in Europe. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your schedule. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you for the invitation. Great. Before we get into a bunch of these questions, I'm kind of curious about your own professional arc. And I found a quote from Enda Kenny that I wanted to explore for a little bit. It, you know, he, he mentioned that you played a vital role in the last government, which guided Ireland out of an international bailout and back on the path to recovery. So that's his quote. And I guess I want to ask you about how that experience, your experience at the national level, particularly coming out of the global financial crisis and through the EU debt crisis, 
crisis, how that has evolved into working on economic and sustainable finance policy at the wider EU EIB level. Well, yeah, it was, um, I mean, I ended up working for Ender Kenny almost by chance. When he was still leader of the opposition, I bumped into him at an airport in Paris uh, following a meeting at the OECD and explained to him while we were queuing to get onto an aircraft back to Dublin, my own views on, on some of the challenges facing the Irish economy. Little did any of us realize that we were about to head into a major, obviously, banking and wider economic crisis, not just for Ireland, obviously, but for Europe and indeed the world. And when things really kicked off in Ireland, uh, he, he remembered the conversation. He called me back and said, look, would you consider coming to work for me as, as I prepare for, for the next election and possibly for government? And I have to say, I jumped to the chance. Uh, I, I was previously a chief economist at a, an Irish government agency dealing with matters related to competitiveness, technology, infrastructure, sustainable development. And I thought this was obviously a unique opportunity to play a key role. And when we got into government in 2011, uh, things were very desperate at that time for Ireland. Uh, The banking system was obviously hemorrhaging money. The public finances were were pretty much out of control with a a deficit of about 12% of GDP, we were losing about 5,000 jobs a week. You know, the private sector economy was collapsing and we needed, um, as a matter of absolute urgency, obviously, to stabilize uh, not just the public finances, but the finances of, of the country as a whole. And uh, obviously, that brought us into a lot of contact with European institutions as part of the bailout. Obviously, particularly the European Commission, the European Central Bank, the IMF, but also it brought me into contact with the European Investment Bank. The European Investment Bank at that time was probably less well known. It was a, you know, it had always been a major financier of big infrastructure projects across Europe. But increasingly, it was being asked during the debt crisis to play this kind of counter cyclical role in supporting not just infrastructure finance, but finance for governments and for the private sector more generally, particularly in countries that were being hardest hit by the crisis. And I found myself in regular contact with the EIB as part of my engagement with European institutions and was increasingly interested and fascinated by the role this institution could play in advancing European hemorrhaging policy goals uh, and European interests. And, and as I came to the end of my time in office in Ireland in 2016, it just so happened, Jason, that a Ireland's turn for appointing a vice president, which comes every 12 years for Ireland. Ireland's turn was coming up, and uh, I applied for the job, and uh, here here I am. So it, it really is fascinating now to sit on the other side of the table and play the role from a, uh, from a European perspective. I still look after Ireland's interests as well as the interests of a number of European countries, but of course at the end of the day, we're here not to pursue national interests, but, but the interests of the Union as a whole. Yeah, I've got to say, I'm, I'm obviously impressed by that trajectory, but uh, frankly, I'm also impressed by the strong elevator pitch. It sounds like you've got when you pitch that to Enda in the airport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Easy, you got to take your chances. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, let's start off. Let's try and find 
some bearing from your perspective in the midst of, of this global pandemic. And I guess I'm, I'm wondering, because I've heard you talk before about how not only is the European Investment Bank, the EIB, not just the largest multilateral provider in the sort of new energy space, but it's, it's effectively repositioning itself as the EU climate bank. Maybe you can sort of help frame what that means. So yeah, the European Investment Bank is, is is the bank of the European Union, owned by the uh, now 27 uh, member states of of the European Union, and it goes all the way back to the Treaty of Rome, 1958. So we're just over six years old, and 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 the, the you know the bank has a very the has a very simple mission, which is to to support investment projects with both advisory and finance that help deliver on the goals of the European Union. And I mean, and to illustrate that, obviously, our priorities have changed all the way through this 60 years. From the very beginning, the priority was to help support southern Italy, the Mezzogiorno, try and catch up with the other, uh, um, the living standards in the, in the other five founding member states, right through to the 1980s, when the agenda was very much about the single market, about integration of power networks, telecom networks, road and rail, uh, and so on. It was uh, literally building up the European single market into the first decade of, of, of this century when the agenda was very much about in the enlargement of the Union towards uh, Central and Eastern Europe and, again, supporting those countries' needs in terms of economic catch-up with the richer Western European countries. Into this decade, uh, where the agenda was very much about fighting the banking and financial crisis that we've just discussed, and the bank playing this counter-cyclical role to support particularly private sector financing as commercial banks um, consolidated and indeed contracted. And uh, as we got towards the end of this decade, it was becoming very clear that the agenda was once again moving on, the political agenda of the union. And if the last decade was about the financial crisis, that the next decade, and indeed the decades to come, were going to be very much about the EIB playing a role in addressing the environmental crisis and the climate crisis in particular. And by 2018, 2019, it was becoming very clear that this was becoming, and we could see this through national elections, we could see it through the European elections last year, that this was very much moving up the agenda to becoming a top priority uh, at national level, at, at EU level, and indeed you know, at the level of, of communities across the European Union. And we very much began to ramp up our own thinking as to how we could play a greater role. Now, EIB had always, for, for 10, 15 years, has, has made climate financing a major priority. And indeed, we have been the largest multilateral, multilateral financier of climate action. But we did decide last year it was very much time to uh, to even uh, further expand our ambitions in this area. And we set out a new climate finance strategy towards the end of last year, underpinned by a new energy lending policy, with the ambition to very much, as you said, position the European Investment Bank as the EU climate bank, to make climate central to everything we would now do over the next, uh, over the next five to ten years. Um, and obviously, we've Publish those ambitions towards the end of uh, last year, and this year we, you know, was the intention that we would now begin to execute on those on those strategies. And we've had to reflect, obviously, Jason, uh, over the course of this year about the interaction between those strategies and the COVID nineteen crisis. And this has been obviously 
a dominant theme for us over the last six months. How interconnected has this project been across the EU? I mean, from the European Commission to the EU's legislative program going on, as well as the funding commitments. Has it been, would you say, a coordinated effort to to have all these moving pieces sort of move together? Or has it been more autonomous in that sense, particularly on the funding side? I think, I mean, uh, you know, we, we are an autonomous institution owned by the member states directly, but the European Commission is very much part of our governance, even if it's not a shareholder. So we have, we have extensive interaction with the European Commission in terms of the development of our own strategies. We also obviously, by virtue of our governance, have extensive interactions with the member states themselves. I think the EIB is very well positioned to pick up the signals from from both the member states directly and and indeed from other EU-level institutions such as the Commission. I think we're all moving in a single direction. I certainly haven't found any great conflicts of priority between different EU institutions and the member states. There have been extensive discussions about timing of certain developments, about tactics, about individual priorities. But I think we're all feeling the same message from the electorate and from the taxpayers of Europe, which is that their priorities are changing. They're seeing the issue of environment and climate in particular as a major, major priority for them, for their families, for their lives, for their careers. And this is something that has really changed in the last two to three years. So I think we're all operating in that same political context. And it's not surprising, therefore, that our strategies, I think, are quite coherent and consistent. I think, you know, it, they're becoming more coherent, I have to say, and consistent. And I think in some ways, the response to COVID-19 has accelerated that process. I think one of the criticisms, perhaps, even of the EIB six months ago in terms of setting out our own climate ambitions, perhaps of the European Green Deal, which was obviously the, the kind of landmark strategy of the European Commission on climate and environment was that they were quite aspirational strategies, but where was the money? Where was the funding, the financing to deliver on these? I think what we're seeing now in the last six months, and particularly in response to the COVID-19 crisis, is is an acceleration in decision-making to actually underpin those strategies with real resources. And uh, this is obviously very much a, a live issue this week with a European Council meeting towards the end of the week discussing the next European Union budget and its recovery plan. But I expect what we'll have emerging out of uh, the discussions at the political level in the next couple of weeks is not just a very coherent climate, environmental and economic recovery strategy, but one that is now fundamentally underpinned uh, by very concrete resource decisions uh, for the next uh, five to seven years. Uh, and I think that's going to obviously give people some confidence that the union has answered the calls for uh, to play a greater role uh, in the response to not just the COVID-19 crisis, but the longer term climate and environmental crisis. And I do hope we look back on this period of time, you know, maybe in five to 10 years, we look back on this period of time and, and, and look at this as a milestone moment when the union really started to take extremely seriously uh, the climate crisis and its own responsibilities. Well, what does this mean for the EIB 
culturally. You know, I mean, it's, it's role sort of historically, it's been a traditionally discreet public bank based, obviously in, in Luxembourg. But now we're talking about sort of a big change, not just in exposure and not just in absorbing, as you mentioned, you know, the signals from, from other member stakes, but increasingly moving into a position where it is sending a powerful signal in terms of allocating capital. I think it means, uh, I mean, uh, culturally, I think the mission we have set out, I think, is very much been welcomed by our own staff. I've certainly found within the organization that the strategy that we have set out is now a very strong motivational force for the organization. Like any bank, we're in the business of trying to recruit the best possible talent the best possible young minds to deliver on our on, on, on our business, to deliver on our mission. And what we've found in the last six to nine months is is this, the, the, the mission that we have set out for ourselves of, of transforming ourselves into the EU Climate Bank is often becoming the single greatest reason why people want to come and work for the European Investment Bank. This is very encouraging for us. I think it's also cemented the relationship between the bank and our shareholders, which is obviously extremely important. We faced questions like like any public institution. We face regular questioning from our shareholders about our added value, about our additionality, about where we make really make a difference. Uh, as I said, we were working to counteract the effects of the banking financial crisis for the last 10 years, but that's been easing off for three to four years. And I think this new mission on climate and environment really has strengthened that relationship and reminded our shareholders of how their investment in the IB really brings added value and allows certain things to happen that would otherwise not happen. So I, I, I think these are very powerful tools to mobilize the institution and our staff. Of course, we have put ourselves out there. We've put ourselves in some ways, we've made ourselves much more visible by the commitments that we've made by by committing that we would become the first international financing institution to stop financing unabated fossil-related uh, energy projects, for example. We have published extremely ambitious climate targets. That means, obviously, we have now a responsibility to deliver. We now know there is no hiding anymore in the woods of Luxembourg from, from public scrutiny. We now need to deliver on the strategies that we've set out and we now need to be attentive to all aspects of our business and how we do business and how we be- behave to make sure that's consistent with the mission and vision we set out for the institution. So, of course, that added visibility in some ways is very motivating. It's, it's a very powerful tool for the organization. It also brings new business for us and new, new promoters into contact with us, which is very good. But it's obviously a, re- a great responsibility for the organization as well in terms of living up to the ideals that we've set out. Great. I want to stay on this new energy lending program, which, as you mentioned, meant uh, no longer supporting energy projects that rely on unabated fossil fuel by the end of 2021. And I think what's interesting is we've seen the EBRD exit from thermal coal and coal-fired financing and the ECB as well talk about changing its asset purchase program from brown to green bond purchases. So it seems like there's clearly some domino effect as a follow-on from the EIB decision. But I want to kind of unpack how you sort of solve for the kind of traditional, call it a collective action problem, which is out of all these EU member states, there have always been a number of them. Typically, it's Poland, Greece, and Romania who have had some kind of overexposure to coal extraction or coal-fired uh, power generation. And so 
you know, they've always been sort of the laggards and, and sort of problematic in terms of creating a real progressive policy. How did you solve for that? Well, I mean, I have to say, I solved by, by, by listening to them, by listening to all of our shareholders, all, and uh, it was 28 shareholders at the time, including the UK, when we began this journey. I think it was a problem of detail. It was, and the challenge were around the details of the package of measures. It wasn't a problem in terms of trying to generate a consensus around the vision. I think across the EU, east and west, north and south, the vision for the end destination was widely shared. The vision for the bank to play a much greater role in financing investments that address the climate and environmental crisis was widely shared across all the regions of Europe. The vision of not dropping our other priorities, but linking our other priorities, infrastructure investment, cohesion, SME financing, linking that with climate and environment, again, was broadly shared among the shareholders. But of course, there were differences. There were differences because... Different countries were at different stages in this energy transition. Uh, Different countries had different energy mixes. And of course, there were differences about how quickly we should move in this direction, um, how how we should phase uh, our changes in eligibility criteria when it came to financing energy projects, and how we should compensate for that when it came to new types of support that we would offer to those member states that were particularly dependent on traditional uh, energy sources. So this was very much a a negotiation in the end about a package deal um, that did not just involve suddenly changing our eligibility criteria overnight, but was also about how we would actually ramp up our activities in certain areas, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe that were further behind. So the particular, you know, the discussion came down to the details. It came down to the detail of the new power generation technologies that we would support uh, that would meet our new emissions performance standard uh, for power generation. It came down to how how quickly we would drop um, fossil fuel projects, particularly gas projects, gas infrastructure projects that we were already working on. It came down to the commitments that we would make on the just transition in particular and how we would work with the European Commission to significantly ramp up our level of support, not just for clean energy financing in those countries further behind in the energy transition, but in financing other projects that would help address the uneven social and economic distributional effects of the energy transition. So, you know, private sector employment, SME financing, universities. And in the end, I have to say through through 12 months of of, uh, negotiation, interaction um, across the member states, we were able to produce a comprehensive package that in the end got the support of 95% of the the capital of the bank. And uh, I think this did indeed send out a very powerful signal uh, to not just to public finance institutions across the world, but indeed to, to finance financial institutions more generally. And we've had an awful lot of interaction since then with, with both public and commercial banks about the nature of the package that we agreed, how it works, how the, sta- how the standards work. Uh, and I think this is going to be, I hope, 
again, a, a powerful signal to other financial institutions about the role banks should be playing in, in, in addressing the climate and environmental crisis. I do want to, I want to step back a little bit because this is a, it's a great theme, but I want to sort of attack it from a different perspective, from a political economy perspective. And we've heard people talk about maybe more widely the Green Deal, the EU Green Deal in the context of, uh, Europe's man on the moon moment or the Hamiltonian moment. And I've heard you talk about it in terms of this Rooseveltian sort of New Deal analogy. And I think talk about why that's probably maybe more appropriate. Well, the new recovery plan being proposed by the European Commission is, I think, a seminal moment in, in Europe's development. Traditionally, the EU produces a, agrees a budget uh, on seven-year cycles, and, and these budgets deliver about you know, 1% of GDP into the EU economy any, every year to finance traditional European-level policies and agriculture cohesion and one or two other areas. Um, and you know, involve some level of, of transfers between the member states, uh, but primarily funded by member state cash contributions each year into the budget. What's being proposed now for the first time in response, obviously, to the COVID-19 economic crisis is that the, at the European Union level, uh, uh, the EU would borrow significantly from the capital markets to... to pretty much double the size of the EU budget uh, and in particular to deliver a you know a major response uh, to the covid-19 crisis to help support a stronger uh, a stronger economic recovery this is a, obviously you know um, has been a you know, an area of great controversy for the european union over 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 you know the last number of weeks since the proposals because never before has the union issued common EU debt uh, to finance its spending programs that ultimately is underpinned by you know, the member states of, of the union. And it's controversial because uh, it, it, it implies that the union takes on liabilities on behalf of the taxpayers, that the member states aren't the only ones who are responsible for the liabilities of, of Europe anymore. I think... It has, however, it is a big step forward in terms of the development of uh, the European Union. It has, I think, sometimes been mistakenly described as a Hamiltonian moment. I mean, a reference, of course, back to um, the first U.S. Treasury Secretary, Secretary Alexander Hamilton, who uh, who unified the debts of the 13 founding states in the end, the post-war debts of the 13 founding states uh, in the United States in the 1790s. This is different in that, you know, we're not, we're not federalizing the debts of, of France, Italy, and Germany at the EU level under this package. It is, I think, more akin to what the United States did in the 1930s when Roosevelt, for the first time in the, uh, in the New Deal, used the powers that Hamilton had created to, to, for the first time outside of a wartime situation to engage in very significant borrowing at the federal level in the United States to finance, uh, obviously, among other things, about 35,000 public works projects across the United States to create jobs and fight the Great Depression. So in some ways, in some ways what's interesting uh, about what's happening in Europe is that Europe is having its Rooseveltian moment before it's having its Hamiltonian moment. There is no 
federalization of member state debts taking place in Europe. But there is this new capacity being built up at the EU level to take on debt uh, for the first time to finance spending programs. I think uh, what's, you know, there's going to be a lot of debate around the detail of this over the coming days and weeks. There's going to be a lot of debate about the allocation of that spending. How is it allocated between the different member states? Does that really take into account, you know, the the differing effects of COVID-19 in the different member states? There's going to be a lot of debate about how that debt is repaid. So what new EU-level revenue streams will be created uh, to start to finance the uh, servicing and repayment of the debt in the long run? But I think what's not to be missed and what is often missed in the commentary around this is the link between this new debt issuance uh, and new spending programs of the Union and the European Green Deal. What's very clear is that an awful lot of the spending will go to reinforcing uh, the green and digital agenda of the European Union. So, for example, of the $750 billion in new borrowing that's been proposed, about $560 billion has been proposed for what are called member state recovery and resilience plans. And these are plans that the member states will be asked to put together to show how they intend to finance new investments to accelerate the green and digital agenda. And these are intended to be obviously well aligned with the new national energy and climate plans that each of the member states have, have put together to show how they, to, uh, how they intend to deliver their part of the 50% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions across the Union by 2030. There's also going to be extensive new guarantees from the EU budget underpinned by this new debt issuance to the European Investment Bank, which will help us finance a lot of private sector investments that are going to be necessary for the European Green Deal, in particular, obviously, in renewable energy, but also in energy efficiency, in public transportation, in new clean tech energy innovation, and so on. There's also going to be significant additional resources made available for the just transition and particularly for those regions that are going to be particularly affected by the uh, transition out of uh, fossil fuel energies. So this effectively is being increased by a factor of five to about 40 billion. And I think this is going to be crucial to generate the, the, the social and political consent for, for the energy transition in the years ahead. So I think this is a very seminal moment. Not, not only is it about using the EU budget for the first time ever as a, as a stabilization tool for the European economy, as, as a tool for stimulating the European economy, not only is it about that, but it is also about using those resources to make sure the recovery generates a different type of economy, to make sure the recovery leads us towards a different uh, destination in terms of environmental sustainability. And I think, again, I hope we look back in 10 years' time. If we look back now at the last financial crisis and we see the, poli- the, the new institutions and policies that came out of the last financial crisis, the European Stability Mechanism, a different type of European Central Bank, the Banking Union, all the tools that have been made sure that this economic crisis hasn't turned into a financial crisis. If we look back in 10 years' time, what will we see emerging out of this crisis? I think what we will see is a new EU budget that can be used to manage the European economy as a stabilization tool. But also we will see that these resources were used for the first time to really deliver on the Union's ambitions in terms of climate and environmental sustainability.
it's always risky to say that this time is different. How do you avoid stepping into that moral hazard issue? You know, that morality tale of the creditors versus debtors that plagued the EU yeah. debt crisis a, a decade ago. These questions will arise, Jason, in the context of these proposals. I have to say, I think, I think the backdrop has been more favorable this time around towards a stronger response to this economic crisis at the EU level compared to the last one 10 years ago. Uh, and the reason is, is clear. It's because um, there is an acceptance at, uh, across the European Union that this economic crisis in some ways is a blameless crisis, that COVID-19 obviously, you know, uh, emerged as an unexpected and common shock uh, to all EU countries. And even if the effects have been different in different EU countries, it, those countries were not to blame for the scale of those effects. And I think this has provided a much more constructive backdrop to the discussions about a common EU economic response. There is not this these very negative morality tales in this crisis about yeah who's to blame, whether it's debtors or creditors. Now, having said that, I think it's also quite clear that giving the EU these new powers to borrow and spend, yeah, even if it is for obviously very sensible investments in sustainability and digitalization of the European economy, it is going to raise fundamental questions about the relationship between the EU and the member states when it comes to managing public finances. And I do think uh, out of this new uh, European Green Deal and this new recovery plan is going to become quite quickly a new discussion, perhaps on the on the treaties themselves. So perhaps after our Rooseveltian moment in the coming weeks, we will now start looking at Hamilton again and discussing within the EU whether we need that Hamiltonian moment in terms of defining very clear terms what the relationship between the Union and the member states are in order to address, as you say, those fears of moral hazard from the European Union playing a much greater role. And I think even the Chancellor Merkel said it in recent weeks that obviously, you know, her priority in terms of the German presidency was to get a new budget agreed that helped fight the COVID-19 crisis, but that quite quickly the conversation would turn to the longer-term fiscal settlement between the Union and the member states. How do you think about conditionality along these lines? The IMF-style conditionality tends to carry negative connotations, but I'm wondering, given the change that you're talking about, do we see new types of conditionality around sustainability or sustainable finance terms that end up potentially proving a constructive incentive to drive the energy and, and just transitions forward? I think the word of conditionality became, as you say, sullied by its relationship, obviously, with the bailout programs agreed under, uh, under the Troika uh, 10 years ago as part of the uh, sovereign debt crisis. I think the new term is really about alignment, is, is alignment between the member states when it comes to using the resources uh, that have been made available. It will have to be clear that what is being financed under the recovery plan, under the European Green Deal, is our projects, our investments, our programs that are very much about sustainability and digitalization. And there is clearly going to be, you know, a strong role for the European Commission and indeed the member states themselves in peer reviewing 
what each member state is doing with the resources that have been made available. This is not about financing the assets of the past or financing the social systems of the past. This is about financing the future. You know, I think this is the compromise that will be at the heart of the political deal that's done in the coming weeks, is that, yes, let's pool our resources. Yes, let's issue common EU debt. But let's make sure what we are financing is in our common interest for the future. So that's the term conditionality. I think, Jason, you will not see this in any, I suspect, in any of the texts. What you will see is terminology around strong alignment and consistency and coherence in the policies that are being pursued at the member states using the resources that have been made available under the recovery plan. Hmm. I want to sort of move on to another point. The EIB has been absolutely vital in terms of the formation and expansion of the green bond market. In fact, the EIB issued the first green bond. And I'm wondering when we think about financial innovation, how do you think about that? Where do the bounds go? One of the terms I sort of think back, another sort of sully term is financialization, you know, to describe financial capitalism. And it was a culprit in the global financial crisis. But I'm wondering, given the urgency and the stakes now, how do you regulate that financial innovation in such a way that you can actually create products that help support and buttress, you know, the energy transition. As an example, the Bank of England has has been talking, as a number of other central banks, about the idea of green securitization. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, finance obviously got a bad name coming out of the financial crisis. And uh, I think the world realized perhaps there was too much finance and that finance had become increasingly de-linked from the real economy. For every euro of asset formation, there seemed to be 10 euros of financing. And uh, this wasn't just about managing risk, but in some ways this was, this was creating risk. And, uh, and, you know, this is, a, this is a context obviously in which the, the EIB operates in, but, but we're quite distinctive in, in many ways. As, 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 a, as an investment bank, we, we, you know, we don't involve ourselves in trading risk. We simply involve ourselves in financing real asset formation um, and, and, and helping and, and trying to mobilize others to finance real asset formation and, and investment. Um, and that does involve financial innovation in a good way. It involves financial innovation, um, the type of financial innovation that is required to understand the new risks associated with the the types of new investments, assets and technologies that are needed uh, to to fight climate change and the wider environmental crisis. So, I mean, let let me just give you an example. Obviously, you know, over the last 15 years, we've become the anchor debt provider to, you know, the development of the European offshore wind industry. Um, we have financed about half of all of, of, the pro, of the offshore wind projects, of the 20 gigawatts of, uh, of offshore wind that have been built in Europe over the, last, uh, over the last 17 years. That has meant we have had to understand those risks. We have had to put together new project finance structures to allocate the risks of those projects effectively between shareholders, equity providers, debt holders like ourselves, public support schemes put in place by the member states. 
Um, we're having to do the same thing in, in other areas that are emerging, in, in areas of battery production, in floating wind projects, in new types of solar projects. Hydrogen is a new area that we're, we're moving into. These have all required financial innovation in order to fully understand and uh, the, the nature of the risks that we're taking and design appropriate financial instruments and structures to allocate those risks uh, appropriately between all the different stakeholders. So it's a good form of financial innovation. It's a form of financial innovation that is helping to generate higher levels of investment in those areas because the risks can be properly managed and distributed to those with an appetite for them. Uh, similarly, uh, mobilizing the capital markets to, to support real economy investments is a good form of financial innovation. And I think that you've mentioned the green bond market. This has been a, a, a financial innovation that in our view has helped to mobilize extra investment for, uh, for climate financing. Uh, we are basically providing greater transparency uh, and confidence to those investors who want to know that their money is being used for investments that are sustainable in the long run and from a, from a wider environmental perspective. We have to, I mean, there's no way banks alone are going to have the necessary capital to finance the energy transition, particularly in Europe. Uh, and we're going to have to find a way to mobilize the wider capital markets uh, to support the European Green Deal. And that is going to require new forms of uh, financial market innovation. We're going to have to move on from uh, standard green bonds issued by banks like the EIB towards green securitization to help uh, move assets off the balance sheets of, of, of banks uh, and into the capital market and, and you know, into the capital markets where the risks can be, can be even further diversified. Uh, and spread uh, spread among more investors. So these are areas that we are we are going to work on, but they are forms of financial innovation that I believe have a net positive impact on so on social welfare uh, and on the European economy. And these are areas we, we as as the European Investment Bank, will continue to work on over the coming years. Yeah. When you think about the idea of bankability from an EIB perspective, how do you think that balance between financial returns versus economic returns, you know, plus maybe externalities as well, how has that shifted? Well, um, so as a, as a, um, as a bank, uh, obviously we, we have to, uh, be sustainable. We have to finance projects that can deliver a financial return, a return on the, on the capital that we're deploying to support our financing of those, of those investments. Um, but as a public bank, we also have to, have to make sure that the investments that we're financing deliver a strong economic return. And we, so we have a dual uh, requirement of every project that we finance. First of all, it, it does need to be bankable. It does need to be uh, capable of, of repaying the debt and remunerating our capital, even if our our cost of finance is, is often below below market and our cost of capital is below market. Um, but we measure every time uh, the economic rate of return of the project. And obviously, we tend to prioritize, Jason, projects where the economic rate of return is significantly higher than the, the financial rate of return of the project because that indicates to us that what we are supporting 
is addressing the market failures that tend to deliver a suboptimal investment situation. So in other words, in our climate projects, in our, in our renewable energy projects, we are looking at, uh, we are calculating the financial rate of return, but we are also building into our models the kind of shadow carbon pricing needed to understand the full economic rate of return of those projects. We're also looking at the innovations in those projects and the wider technology spillover benefits of those projects. Uh, and, and each year we report not just obviously on our, our financial rate of return as an institution, but we also report on the impact that our projects have had in terms of economic uh, growth and in terms of environmental protection. Um, so this is obviously at the core of, of the mission of a, of a public financing institution like the EIB is, is to understand and distinguish between economic and financial rate of return and to build that into our project prioritization. I've heard you speak before about a greemium, essentially better pricing for green bonds for issuers. I'm wondering if there's more evidence that the EIB sees in terms of how its policies or sustainable finance policies is impacting the cost of capital. So we've been issuing green bonds since 2007 when we, we became the first uh, institution to issue a, uh, a green bond, which we call our climate awareness bonds. And, and, and we've, we, we've put out about 35 billion of, of green bonds uh, since then across, across, you know, pretty much the full range of the, of the yield curve of maturities. Um, in fact, we've been the, the, uh, the, not just the first, but the largest issuer, uh, multilateral issuer of, um, of green bonds, uh, uh, over the last, uh, you know, over the last 15 years. And for most of that period of time, um, the benefit to us uh, was mainly reputational. Um, it was to position the EIB as a, as a, a you know, a leading pioneer of climate financing. Um, it was also obviously very much part of our public mission that we help with other actors in the space, other multilaterals uh, and governments and public authorities, that we help build a new market for green finance, set the standards set the norms in terms of transparency, disclosure, reporting, certification, and so on. That was very much part of our public mission, but there was no particular financial return to the institution. This began to change about two or three years ago when we began to notice in the secondary markets, uh, we began to notice a slight distinction change in the, in the pricing of green bonds compared to our plain vanilla bonds. Initially, by only a couple of basis points, uh, you know, we would see the yields on our green bonds just diverging, going, you know, uh, slightly lower than the yield on the plain vanilla bonds by a few basis points, particularly from, you know, five to seven years onwards in the yield curve. And uh, this was a kind of curiosity, but, but, you know, not something that had any major practical implications for us. Into this year, particularly since the, the COVID-19 crisis, we've seen quite a significant widening of that premium on our green, bond, green bonds, what I like to call our greemium, this gap between the, uh, the, the yield on our green bonds and our plain vanilla bonds. And it's widened to about, in, in, across some parts of the yield curve, it's widened to about 8 to 10 basis points. Now, that may not sound like 
an awful lot. But in fact, when you're borrowing at 0%, you know, at uh, 7 to 10 years, 10 basis points is, is quite a big difference in the yield. And it has quite practical uh, implications for us. Now, this is still in the secondary markets. But what we're also beginning to see now is for the first time, we're able to start taking advantage of this in the primary market. So in other words, when we issue in our pricing of our new issuances of green bonds, we can start to look to take advantage of of that increased investor interest. I mean, we've asked ourselves the, the question, why is this happening? Why are investors more interested in holding our green bonds than our plain vanilla bonds? I think it's largely been driven by the new mandates that a lot of institutional investors are receiving from their own stakeholders and shareholders. So an awful lot of central banks, of insurance companies, of of asset managers, of pension funds around the world who buy our green bonds, they're increasingly getting asked themselves how much of their asset base is in the sustainable finance area. How much of it is green? How much of it is linked to climate and the other environmental goals, uh, not just of the European Union, but of, of an increasing number of governments around the world? And they're all feeling the pressures themselves as, an, as investment managers to increasingly start allocating into sustainable finance. We think this is obviously what's ultimately driving it. What's very interesting about this development also is that these are buy to tend to be buy-to-hold strategies. Investors who buy our green bonds, it's quite evident they are not selling those bonds, even during times of market volatility, or certainly to a much lesser extent uh, than the holders of our plain vanilla bonds. So we, are ha- we have buy-to-hold investors that don't sell in a crisis period. They tend to hold these. And we certainly saw this in March and April when we saw liquidity conditions tighten in certain markets. Uh, and we saw this this greemium widen quite significantly because there was very little selling of our green bonds. I think this has got major implications in the longer run in, if, if this trend continues, in that basically we now know we have a different price uh, of funding for climate finance than the price of funding and capital for more traditional projects of the bank. Now, the bank has one uh, allocates our, our you know as, as one cost of funding uh, you know that we allocate across projects but in the longer run it may be the case that we need to distinguish between the cost of funding climate action projects versus the cost of funding of of, of infrastructure of of other types of projects uh, and this is something we're, we're we're reflecting on quite deeply at the moment what are the lessons that maybe the EIB or you are taking from the pandemic. I've heard you say that if anything's instructive out of the pandemic, it's that the EU needs to be vigilant about its supply chain vulnerability around critical materials and particularly technologies like batteries. Yeah. So, I mean, I think um, what we, you know, have seen through COVID-19 is quite significant interruptions in supply chains across European industry. And indeed, this has been a phenomenon facing the entire world. But obviously, from the EIB's perspective, what we've certainly noticed is supply chain interruptions in, in, in key aspects of the energy sector and the clean energy sector required for decarbonization. So, for example, we've seen a lot of interruptions in projects that we're financing in wind, in solar, not just in the European Union, by the way, but indeed, indeed across the world. We've also seen, obviously, in the, in the auto sector, We've seen quite significant supply chain uh, disruptions 
uh, for vehicle production, including uh, in the e-mobility area. And I think, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I think what I'm noticing across industry uh, and indeed in government across the European Union is a new is a new sense of vulnerability that Europe faces because of its increasing dependence on non-EU actors for some of the strategic technologies that are going to be absolutely vital towards Europe's and both its industrial ambitions, but also its environmental and decarbonization agenda. And a new attention and prioritization of the need to build up resilient supply chains where appropriate through EU production and EU sourcing of critical raw materials, but indeed where also appropriate through trade relationships that we know are going to perform even in a crisis period. I see this very much obviously in the operation of the European Battery Alliance, where there's an increasing awareness now that batteries are going to be very much the source of competitive advantage in the production of the auto sector in the coming years, and that if Europe doesn't take out a leadership role in the development of the components required for batteries for the electric cars of the future, it's going to be increasingly vulnerable in terms of where production of cars actually takes place. So in other words, if battery production doesn't start in Europe, then car production may end up elsewhere. I also see it obviously in in other areas. There's obviously now another look at whether solar uh, can't again become competitive in Europe. I see it in the area of hydrogen. Uh, I see it in the area of offshore wind. I see it in the area of floating wind. A new attention to the need to make sure Europe has the right components, raw materials, skills and supply chains to build those industries in Europe. I think this is going to be very much evident, obviously, in the package that is likely to be agreed by EU leaders in the coming weeks. So last question. Um, Students um, make up a large part of the podcasts. It's a fact that I'm really proud of. And I'm often asked about advice that I would give them. And I want to turn that around and ask you what advice you would give them for the students that are really interested in pursuing economic policy or policy around sustainable finance along the lines of what you've done. What guidance would you give? Well, maybe come and work at the European Investment Bank. And uh, <laughs> uh, when we were considering changing our energy lending policies over the last number of uh, couple of years, I have to say, uh, you know, when we received literally thousands and thousands of submissions to the bank, you know, as part of our public consultation process, I was really, really gratified to see that so many of those submissions were from people who are either still in college, still in school. And they were becoming active and interested in climate policies in particular and in how, you know, how to shape and change the world so that when they grew up, uh, there would be a a world that would be a nice place to live in. You know, so instead of just decrying finance, instead of calling for the closure of institutions and banks and financial institutions, what they were calling for was change and reform. What they recognized was the ability to change these institutions from the inside out. And I really do hope that students who want to obviously use their skills, uh, use their energy to create a better world, see the opportunity to change big institutions from the inside out. I mean, I think external pressure is always helpful. It's always good. But the way to really deliver change 
is to get into these institutions and start changing them from the inside. So please do. Please come and work at the European Investment Bank and uh, help change us for the better. That's a great way to uh, end this then. Thanks, Andrew. So it's been fascinating to understand why the EU Green Deal and the broader EU Recovery Plan represent Europe's Rooseveltian New Deal moment, how the EIB is positioning itself as the EU's climate bank and how wider EU sustainable finance legislation reinforces the EIB's climate objectives. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and views. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment Demand Group, here today with Andrew McDool, Vice President of the European Investment Bank. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's been great. Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri dash podcast or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.